You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. In this episode, I'm turning to a topic that I haven't covered much before. I often talk to journalists about their risk investigations and the price they pay for continuing their work. But what happens when one day their reporting is indistinguishable from something produced by a computer? And what can be done when honest journalism becomes drowned in a sea of polarizing algorithms and wild conspiracy theories? Against the dystopian background of big tech companies that do little to tackle disinformation online and the AI revolution, a journalist's job seems harder than ever. And don't get me started on those deep fakes that often look like the real deal. To make sense of it all, I'm speaking with our brilliant guest, Coda Story senior reporter Isabel Cockrell. She's been tackling these topics for quite some time. Firstly, let's hear about Coda Story and Isabel's role within it. I'm a senior reporter at Coda Story. I've been there ever since I basically became a journalist. I kind of joined them as a cub reporter when I was 25 in 2018, so five years ago now, which is crazy to think about. Um, And we're a kind of specialist news organization in the sense that we report specifically on what we call currents, which are kind of, I guess you would describe them as the undercurrents that kind of shape the crises of our time. And we've built on that as we've grown. Um, But our main kind of thematic focuses that are the main things that we focus on are, are disinformation, authoritarian tech. So how authoritarianism and tech kind of work together. And then we look at also climate and I look at kind of climate movements and climate disinformation, uh, which I've been focusing a lot on in the last year. We also report on anti-science movements, which is something we actually started about six months before the pandemic. I became really interested in all of these anti-vaccine movements. And so we were quite ahead of the curve um, when the pandemic hit. We had already been reporting a lot of, on a lot of these underground communities for for month, many months and investigating them. So we were very well placed to cover that disinformation during the pandemic. Yeah, actually, yes. back in <laughs> yeah, back in twenty twenty, I had a really interesting chat with Natalia and Tilava about all this COVID related disinformation and the harassment of journalists who are trying to uh, talk about it honestly by all these conspiracy theories. Despite all the efforts of regulators, it seems like the disinformation warfare has only got worse. Social media such as Meta and Twitter is not doing enough to combat it. And while there's been enough evidence now that, for instance, since Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter or X, how he prefers to call it, the platform has been named the worst offender from climate denialism to fakes about war in Ukraine and other conflicts. Um, As a journalist, have you personally noticed this degradation and does it affect your work at all? I would say I think since I joined CODA, I have noticed an increase in the amount of just the sheer amount of disinformation noise that we're experiencing online and we're exposed to. I think what's quite difficult for me as a journalist is understanding 
what's being fed to me versus what's being fed to everyone else or what's being fed to a, a different kind of person. And some journalists kind of get around this by creating different personas on social media. Maybe they even have multiple phones. I've heard of disinformation reporters having multiple phones so that they can un they can sort of break outside of their echo chamber and understand what kind of disinformation different people, different demographics are being exposed to. So in a way, in a kind of perverse way, when X, when Twitter became X, we did see this incredible kind of sea change in the amount of disinformation we were seeing online. For me as a reporter, it was actually a really interesting moment because suddenly I was not having to do all these workarounds to see into people's echo chambers. I was just getting it all on my desk. So actually Natalia, my editor, and I had this conversation about like how for us it was quite interesting actually because we were seeing we were being served the disinformation directly and so there was this it was almost felt less insidious in a way because we could see what other people were being fed uh now of course there's so much danger to that and of course the platforms have a huge responsibility to regulate but i think purely purely as a reporter um these kind of disinformation ecosystems I think that, to be honest, I think they're always going to find a way to live online as long as we have these incredibly powerful um, tech platforms kind of controlling and owning all of that data and all of those spaces. And what regulations would you like to see in place to help to combat this disinformation and the spread of fake news on social media platforms, perhaps on the legal kind of multinational level or something that can be done by media outlets? I think it's hard for me as a journalist to call for a specific kind of regulation or a specific kind of, or set or tell the tech companies like what the steps are that, that they should take. What we know right now is that like a very few amount of people have the monopoly on all of the data that about us, about our social, that all of the data that we kind of generate from using social media, they have a, they have access to such a huge wealth of information about our lives. Um, and then, and they have so much power over, over the narratives and the, the disinformation that we're fed. And we need to see a sort of democratization of that. We need to see, we, we can't keep seeing these kind of Silicon Valley executives having all of this kind of mm. monopoly over information. So I think I would like to see more regulation on that side, more regulation of these elites, um, of these billionaires who are controlling our information ecosystems. But how that would be done, I I don't think I can say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not up to you as well. I guess it's just your input is really important because you see it firsthand. And, and how, what's your strategy or perhaps your editorial strategy to kind of break through this blockade so we've never done debunking or kind of fact checking um, as an organization. That's a useful that it that's a useful thing that has its place, but it's never been our mission. And it's never been any like it's never approached anything that close to what we do as a journalism organization. We feel, and I certainly feel, that in a sense, fact checking, while useful, is ultimately a giant game of whack-a-mole and you won't be able to change the system or change how people interact with media simply by fact-checking every little tiny piece of disinformation that you see online. So for us, we felt that the approach needed to be different. We needed to help people understand the systems that were at play, understand the power structures 
and kind of almost inoculate themselves against disinformation. I almost over the years have started to see it as almost like a vaccine against disinformation. How can you how can you vaccinate people against disinformation mm-hmm. um, digitally or through storytelling? And so that's what we kind of arrived at was actually stories. The you know storytelling is the best way to help people understand how the world works. So for us, it was all about actually going in with an open mind, speaking to the people who found themselves caught up in these disinformation networks understanding how they were sucked in and then telling their stories. So that's, I mean, that was primarily the focus of my work, especially during the pandemic. Um, So we did a lot on, for example, QAnon and how it was destroying families. Um, My colleague Miriam Kaproidze did a lot on how QAnon kind of was sucking family members into its cult, basically, and people were losing family members as a result. And I did a lot as well on these underground conspiracy networks, um, how they were kind of disseminating information. But I think approaching everything with compassion and empathy Mm. as a journalist and and trying to see through people's perspectives how they arrived, how they ended up in these worlds, what was going on in their lives, how were they exploited by these systems. And then telling those stories helps people to understand how they can kind of protect themselves against disinformation in the future um, and what to look out for. Yeah, I think it's very interesting the point that you make about compassion and being non-judgmental because it's just so tempting to write a snarky Twitter thread or um, make a meme about, oh, they're, you know, they're so stupid that they believe in that stuff. But these are genuine beliefs or kind of on almost religious beliefs that people have and that's the way they see the world and it's really difficult to change that perspective and you can't just do it in one go like you said just picking this non-judgmental approach and trying to level um with people who have these perhaps dangerous beliefs is is really important um for a journalist and if you think about the pandemic and what was going on then or if you think about the world that we live in today we live it it was an incredibly isolating time it still is an incredibly isolating time we're in a kind of loneliness epidemic people are spending so much time on social media people are interacting less in real life with each other and what a conspiracy group or a kind of disinformation ecosystem offers people is a worldview and a kind of home and um it offers them an easy answers to the complicated depressing (laughs) devastating problems of our world um it offers them a way out it offers them a community it offers them so many things that our society actually doesn't really give give us (laughs) um and so I I started to understand that a lot more during my reporting during the pandemic and continuing now in my reporting, especially on the climate. I experienced it myself when I started to report on the climate. I'd never done climate reporting before. And I think like many people, I think everyone lives in a kind of state of climate denial at some level. You kind of have to in order to kind of move through the world and get through your day. It's Oh yeah, otherwise you might as well just jump out of the window because (laughs) once you really start thinking about just the magnitude of it all, you know, all the poor polar bears and penguins and melting ice caps. Yeah, it's just really depressing. Yeah, exactly. And I think so. I think all of us can understand what climate denial is. All of us kind of employ it in our daily lives. And, And I really started to like work on basically trying to dismantle my own denial and really face up to what what we were looking at, what our future might look like. And it was a real moment of 
despair, devastation, dread. It was just a horrible, horrible time for me. And it was, it was, and I was just reading everything I possibly could and just finally doing the work, I guess, of understanding what we were facing. And that was when I really understood, okay, it is, I can completely see how seductive it would be to be like, okay, well, this is all just, you know, this is all just a narrative that we're being fed. You know, this isn't real. Um, it, it was, it's such a convenient thought to think, well, actually, maybe the earth is going to be fine. And this yeah, is all just, but it's just fear more rubbish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just we're the conspiracy theorists, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as, and as soon as I kind of thought that, I thought, God, that just feels like, this that what a relief that would be to to think that way unfortunately we don't have that I don't have that choice and no one really should have that choice but I can understand how you get there um because it's it's another way to get through the day yeah and obviously the topic of climate change is something that you turn to often in in your writing and your investigations and I think that when it comes to conspiracy theories and crazy disinformation campaigns, we think about something very obvious. We think about uh, all these bot farms in uh, in Russia. We think about all the uh, Russian-Ukrainian uh, war um, propaganda. And uh, lately, uh, the Middle East crisis fakes on both sides. Are there any examples of this disinformation campaign or conspiracy theories that maybe didn't make it on front pages um, that you investigated, but general audiences should really be aware of something that's not so obvious but it's kind of seeped into our lives i mean this was kind of front page but i just thought uh, we've been oh, so okay that interested. was a bit insulting i think yeah. sorry no, that was the wrong no, no. way of wording it definitely <laughs> no what i mean is i think like probably most people will have heard of this but i think it's really interesting to try and understand it and its origins so one thing that we've been really interested in following um, over the last few years, actually since well before the pandemic, well before Ukraine. So we followed, we started following the story in, I think, 20, 2017, which was the story of the, the sort of Russian narrative of these American bio labs on Russia's borders. Um, so I was reporting in Tbilisi in 2018 and my colleague Georgi Lomsadze did this brilliant feature about um, the Luger lab, which was an American owned lab. Um, and America does run a lot of these bio labs um, all over the world. And they were set up in uh, after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. So, um, so the US does build labs all over the world um, and they're often with the aim of spreading disease in the local region. Um, and in the case of some of the labs in the former Soviet Union, so for example, the Luger lab in Tbilisi, it was set up to deal with some of the deadly pathogens that were left over from the Soviet Union's biowarfare program. Um, so they have incredible lovely high levels of biosafety and advanced technology um but because these labs are seen by uh the kremlin as kind of threat u.s threats on russia's doorstep they have spent many years spreading uh conspiracy theories and disinformation about the labs so now when you go to georgia there is this kind of there are often these rumors about this luga lab for example the one outside of tbilisi that um, that it's spreading stink bugs, that it's killing local farm animals, um, um, that any, you know, any, any, any cold or cough or flu that goes round, 
you might hear that it was from the Luger lab. And this is a part, this is the result of a sort of targeted Russian disinformation campaign mm. um, targeting these labs. And so my colleague wrote about it in 2018 about how these kind of crazy rumors sort of swirling around this lab that, you know, there were all these wild stories about how they had a secret basement where they were kind of cooking up uh, different different um, diseases and different pathogens and releasing them into the atmosphere. It all sounds like very far-fetched and wild, but these were things that people were, that actually were being spread and that, that were affecting people and affecting the way that, that they thought. So cue the pandemic. And when the pandemic um, hit, these labs again became a target of Russian disinformation. And the Russian disinformation actually kind of like merged with Chinese disinformation because, um, Beijing was very, very keen to keep attention away from Wuhan um, and try and pin the origins of the pandemic on a di- on some on a different location. Um, and so we saw the Luger Lab and other uh, US owned labs become the subject of Chinese uh, state media pieces, kind of trying to trying to suggest that the 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 that the COVID the COVID nineteen originated in those labs. And then when the Ukraine war started, um, when Russia when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, those labs again became a target of Russian dis- disinformation and was held were held up as kind of reasoning for why Putin was allowed to make his illegal invasion of Ukraine because there were these labs on his doorstep and they were threatening him. So the labs became this kind of theme. Um, theme of Russian disinformation that also kind of combined with Chinese disinformation. And then we had things, influencers, uh, for example, Russell Brand, who was talking about these labs and picking it up and it became, it sort of morphed into this sort of the QAnon world of conspiracy theories as well. Uh, so the Biolabs narrative became an incredibly potent one that was picked up by all sorts of people for all sorts of different ways. Um, and it's been really fascinating to track that and see people being taken in by those narratives. Um, and I visited the Luger Lab in Tbilisi. I mean, it's just an incredibly um, boring, <laughs> boring lab. And like during the during the COVID pandemic, they were providing, um, they were they were doing a lot of the, the testing, um, especially in the early, early days. Yeah, you, you've never been to a less interesting place. <laughs> but it's yeah, like it this sort of, sort of mythical place. Yeah, yeah snowballed absolutely. completely. Yeah, it I had mean, this it's... sort of mythical place in people's, in the sort of disinformation ecosystem um, surrounding these labs. Yeah, and it's interesting how you said that, yeah, in Georgia, um, there are these conspiracy theories whenever there's a flu going around, because, you know, being from the Caucasus myself, I'm from Chechnya, I really love, I really know how much our people um, love a good conspiracy theory. But, you know, when you talk about um, just these really intricate snowballing theories, or maybe not so intricate, that keep finding a new life in every Mm -hmm. crisis, it just sort of reminds me of uh, when I used to go to the village uh, in Chechnya when I was a kid and there are all these stupid little rules, you know, like someone would say, you can't leave your armpits after sundown because devil will tickle them or something like that. And then it just really seemed like someone just came up with it just as a joke. And then it just became this belief among children. I was just going to say on that, like, I think that that's, that just speaks to like the power of storytelling, right? Like good conspiracy theories mm. and good dis- like, good disinformation, the kind of disinformation that people will buy into is a, is always a good story, always has a good narrative. The Luger Lab narrative, the Biolabs narrative is a great story. And it's one that people can feel emotional about. It's about their kids. It's about, it's about their home. Um, 
it's it's about you know if they're if they're feeling vulnerable if they're feeling sick they can have something to blame it on and um that's a really powerful thing stories have power and that's why we really feel that to fight disinformation you also have to be telling stories you have to be telling true stories and those stories have to um have to be inspiring and have to be compelling um and they also have to be true yeah that's that's a real important point actually i wanted to talk about uh, something slightly different but i thought since we're talking about all the technology and disinformation um I feel maybe there's a little space to talk about this. It's about the AI technologies, which I think mm-hmm. can both be well. I think they cause such a such strong reaction from 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 the audience, from doom to hope. Uh, when when you think about all these image generators and mm-hmm. large language models and how they can benefit us or they can just take away our jobs. And again, as a journalist, as someone who works with text with words every day, do you find these new AI technologies useful or do you consider them a threat? How do you approach them? I'm kind of, I have, I have mixed feelings. I, I'm very afraid of the kind of worldview and the mentality of the people building these AI models. And I'm very afraid of the amount of data that the sort of enormity of the data land grab that is these large language models scares me to a great degree, even with my own use of, say, ChatGPT, because I do use it a lot. Um, I use it for all kinds of things. <laughs> I, use yeah, it I mean, like, it's very but... helpful. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kind of um, turn away from it. Although there is now like this growing movement, they call themselves the new Luddites, who say that we we shouldn't be using this technology until we know more about it. And I totally respect that opinion. And I think these people are kind of heroes of their time as well. That being said, I do use these these models. And, and when I'm using them, I'm feeling, I almost feel sick sometimes of, of some of the things that I'm inputting into them. Because I I've started to use ChatGPT for all kinds of things from like book recommendations and film recommendations to like into relationship advice or like slightly my therapist to helping me write emails. It's really good and, at planning holidays as well. I can yeah, tell Yeah, I use that. it for that too. <laughs> I use it for that too. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, this, this model knows so much about my life, like so much already. And I've barely been using it for more than a few months. Um, so that really, that really frightens me. The fact that we are putting all of this data in and what, and how that data is going to be used and what that will mean in terms of just in just shit, purely increasing the sheer amount of power and money that a very few tech elites have in Silicon Valley. So that's, and I'm worried also by their worldview and their kind of philosophy um, but we don't need to get into all of that. But yeah. it does scare me, needless to say. I mean, um, we need to listen to some bro- tech bros five-hour podcast, I think, if we want to hear about their philosophy because they're very exactly. keen to, yeah, to uh, yeah. preach preach it to everyone. Totally. And I, unfortunately for my job, I have to listen to this stuff all day. So I do, I, I that is the sort of downside is you have to kind of expose yourself to some of these things. Um, and it's quite trying to listen to, but... That being said, I think now is an inc- like uh, is a moment, and we are very much experiencing this now at both at Coda and across the industry of what can we do to ensure that you know we're cutting through this noise and that we're going to be relevant and that we're going to be still needed, and we we need to think so laterally. So we're kind of scrambling right now, or not even scrambling. We're, we're just thinking very, very deeply about 
how we can continue to do journalism that reaches people and that cuts yeah, through that's, the noise. Yeah, that's kind of, um, I wanted to, to lead us to this question to sum up our, our conversation, since we're talking about all these new technologies mm-hmm. and, you know, the old propaganda, with all this fast-paced evolution of technology that can be both malicious and beneficial, do you think that journalism is entering an uncharted territory or is there a way to adapt and break through this wall? Mm, absolutely. I mean, journalism certainly is. I mean, this is probably, I reckon, I mean, we've had many pivots as over the last couple of decades. You know, there was like the famous pivot to video. And that is it, a few years ago when I was joining journalism, we were just finishing the sort of pivot to video moment where it was journalists were all told that they needed to gain multimedia skills and learn how to shoot and be a one man band and shoot their own videos, quick videos that they could then sell to platforms. Uh, so I learned all of those skills and then in the end it didn't turn out to be that useful <laughs> and certainly in the future I don't think it will be but this is certainly I think the biggest challenge that journalism and journalists will ever face uh, certainly it's I think it's the biggest uh, challenge to journalism yeah in history and we we need to be ready and we need to be thinking very carefully about how we're going to approach it and we need to be flexible and nimble and I guess our ideas at the moment are thinking about um, deepening our storytelling, deepening our voices, because, you know, anyone can now, any AI can now write in like an aggregated newsletter or an aggregated piece of news. So, and in, and when, and in, in just a few years, people will be like probably checking AI to check the daily, using AI to check the daily news. So that will kill, that could kill breaking news. So how do we but that. then these news have to come from somewhere right right i mean they exactly. don't just that's and the, thing. The, the the one thing that ai can't do yet <laughs> is be on the ground talking to people and gathering that information and turning it into a beautifully told story that could have only come from you and your experiences and what you've witnessed on the ground so for me personally as a journalist i don't have the answers for the industry but for me it's about digging down into the shoe leather on the ground, deeply reported stories that I've always done and just trying to do them even better and then figuring out exciting ways to bring them to people, whether that's through um, a really personal kind of newsletter that could only have been written by me and only mean only like only employs my voice or a, um, you know, beautifully produced podcast or like an event you know, a real life event, a real experience that people have to go to and sit down at. Um, So we're thinking about all these things right now. What are the best ways for people, actually our journalists to actually reach people um, and kind of play a part in their lives in a kind of almost in a physical way? How can we break past the kind of (laughs) the digital structure of AI? And it's like, it's about living in the physical world and helping other people to experience the world around them. Um, so I guess that's what I'm thinking. It's a little bit, I don't know. Um, it, we're still in the early stages of thinking about this. Like everyone is right. So, and to all the listeners who want to read journalism made by humans and not by robots, please go and follow Coda and read Isabel's brilliant reporting. You won't be disappointed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It's made by humans and it's about humans. <laughs> <laughs>